Food is everything. From the fields to the grocery store, from our plates to our health, from community to personal and professional reintegration. We all need to eat every day. And because of it, being trained in any aspect of food production, preparation or nutrition will provide a foundation for one's life that a person will be able to stand on forever. That is the idea behind an amazing nonprofit organization that offers food service training as a way to reintegrate people back into society. Food service training, changing lives for common good. That's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Create Common Good is a nonprofit organization out of Boise, Idaho, founded on the principle that food service provides one of the most applicable professional platforms for disenfranchised and underserved people to return to society and have society benefit from it in a very tangible way, as we will learn. Food touches so many areas of our lives, personally and, of course, professionally often behind the scenes. Ever wondered how that pre-cut pineapple made it onto the shelf at your grocery store? We'll find out today. Food service training, changing lives for common good. Our topic in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. We're grateful for the support of our underwriters who made this show possible. Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and the culinary arts become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced, mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a distributor of organic fruits and vegetable that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria, from caterers to personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated, dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And our topic in this hour is food service training, changing lives for common good. And I'm speaking now with the CEO of Create Common Good, one of those amazing organizations that have made job training around food their main focus. And that's Tracy Hitchcock, who's joining me today from Boise, Idaho. Tracy, do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here. Thank you for joining us in this hour of an organic conversation. It's kind of amazing that food touches so many areas of our lives, personally, of course, health, nutrition, and professionally, often behind the scenes, there's an entire industry that makes sure we eat, whether that's food on the grocery store shelf or in cafeterias or in so many other areas of, of our lives. There's an entire world where food gets prepared and shipped And you are a big part of that. Can you describe your programs and what that exactly means in your case, Create Common Good Food Service Job Training? Absolutely. So our program, uh, we are a social, social enterprise nonprofit, um, but our, our program is really focused on helping people with barriers to employment gain the skills in the food service industry so that they can get gainful employment. And so what that means is we're working with folks that are either new Americans or coming out of incarceration, addiction, escaping domestic violence, or coming out of non-chronic homelessness. We're, we're really focused on working with people who can gain the skills necessary to be successful in the food service industry. And that's an eight-week program that we do. Um, that covers um, all of those kind of hard and soft skills that are required to be successful in the food service industry. And then we provide three months of employment placement support. And so that's kind of the nonprofit programmatic missional side of what we do. And then the social enterprise part is exactly as you were mentioning, the food production side. So we have a large commercial kitchen production area that supports both our training but also this production. So we are, we are doing things like um, dicing onions for a large convenience store chain that they use on their condiment bars to um, you know, co-packing for a local businesswoman who started her own line of salsas um, to um, uh, things like tzatziki and hummus uh, for a local um, restaurant called Euroshack that's looking to expand across the Pacific Northwest. So We're kind of doing a, a bunch of different things on the production side, but the idea is that the revenues that we gain from that side, from the business side, helps us take those contribution and grant and donor dollars even further to be able to support and expand the training program and therefore be able to serve more people in our community. So in other words, you are not relying 100% on that grant writing that so many nonprofits, at least in the past, have relied on, but you found a viable, uh, hopefully viable, in ongoing income source for you to support um, your programs further. How much in your budget does the enterprise part of your social impact nonprofit, or how do you call it, social a, a nonprofit social enterprise is the easiest way to <laughs> yes. say it. <laughs> There is no yes. easy way to say that, but <laughs> it's so important to blend those two. Uh, how, when you look at your overall budget, how much does the service provider part play into that? Sure. So the food production business side really came into itself fully in 2013 uh, when we built the commercial kitchen that mm -hmm. we're in today. 
And so we have seen an increase year over year in those revenues. I would tell you that there's still um, a lower percentage than we would like, but that's because um, we've been learning along the way. And the food service industry is is sort of a pennies margin um, type of business. And so it's smaller than we would like, but our goal is to get it to be at least 30 to 35% of our overall budget. Right now, we're more in that 10 to 15% range, but we are absolutely growing it because we've been able to get more business at a healthy margin that will help us with that sustainable, repeatable revenue. That's what our our, uh, model is built on. Yeah, and there are so many other aspects to it. Your participants in your courses actually provide a valuable product, right? It's actually, this is real life uh, job Mm -hmm. training, not kind of of, uh, set up scenario where this could work. This is actually, you're selling the product at the end. So uh, uh, this must mm-hmm. provide another layer of kind of feeling some sense of accomplishment to your participants. And you are a nonprofit. You're mainly focused on your mm-hmm. programs and you found an income stream rather than a company who donates 5% of their profits uh, exactly. to, to social causes. So uh, that's a that's a great way. And I do believe that the future of the guests that we had on the show, this mix of finding an income stream in addition to the grant writing, however small in the beginning, uh, is really the future for nonprofits. But back to your programs, um, when you talk about food service industry or food industry, what are you teaching? What are you covering? Is it knife skills? Is it prepared foods mostly? Is it chefing, catering? It's, like, it's, it's yeah. sort of a combination of all of those things. Hmm. So we have two levels. The first four weeks is our is our level one program. And that's really about teaching kitchen safety, food safety, sanitation, cross-contamination, those types of things, and then really getting them started on their knife skills. And then at uh, the end of that first four weeks, they transition to level two, which is where we really start to look at weights and measures in the kitchen, how to look at a recipe and understand what you need to do to prep for it, and then to put that recipe together and create a dish from that. And all the while, through that second four weeks, they're learning about professionalism, how to look for a job online, how to write a resume, and those other skills that will help them actually get the job. So in that, that second four weeks, it's that group of trainees that is actually preparing lunch every day that they're here. And our staff and all of the trainees break bread together um, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's when the training classes are going. And we're, we're eating the food that the trainees have prepared. And it also gives a, it not only gives us an opportunity to taste the delicious food that they're making, but also to give them, you know, kudos and feedback and then to share at the table, which obviously is what brings so many people together, um, our stories of success. We're speaking with Tracy Hitchcock in this hour of an organic conversation. Tracy is the CEO of Create Common Good. That's createcommongood.org, who's joining us today out of Boise, Idaho. Create Common Good is a nonprofit that is focused on food service training. And Tracy, you were saying it's for people with barriers to employment, and you mentioned a few areas. Um, how do you bring those students together? Is, are there different programs for people who were incarcerated? Or in your experience, is there really once, once they are 
um, out of prison and want to be part of this. They're basically all in the same pool. People with language barriers, you mentioned. Uh, it sounds like a very eclectic mix of, of people. <laughs> it absolutely is. And um, so I should, I should clarify, folks that are coming out of incarceration, it's for nonviolent crimes, because we do have a mix of our trainees that are coming through. So most of them come to us from partner agencies in town, whether it's refugee agencies, domestic violence agencies, or like vocational rehabilitation type folks, as well as the Department of Corrections. And so um, what we do is we have a fairly uh, robust screening process. Um, there's, a, there's a lengthy application that must be filled out that helps us understand exactly what their barriers are, because usually there's more than one, and helps us understand what their needs are going to be and how they're going to be able to interact with folks from different backgrounds than their own. And so that's the reason that we keep our class size pretty small at this point. We allow nine trainees in level one and nine trainees in level two. So we have 18 people at any given time. And we are very um, intentional in who we allow into the program at what time to make sure that we're um, respecting the backgrounds of everyone who's coming into the program so that they'll feel safe in our environment. And um, it also allows us to really get to know the individuals um, themselves so we can be really intentional about where we're trying to place them in food service industry. But we're, we're really conscious of the various backgrounds and making sure that, uh, first and foremost, people are going to feel safe when they're here. And um, secondly, be able to work with each other as a class. How do you deal with language barriers? You said language could be an, an, a barrier to employment. Do you have a yes. translator or is there a language course associated with food? Um, we have you... a minimum English proficiency requirement as, um, as it's kind of dictated by the English as a second language programs that exist at local colleges, etc. So there's a scale of one to 10 on English proficiency, one being not at all and 10 being fluent. And we require our folks coming into the program to be at that four or five level, so somewhere in the middle, where they're able to understand the concepts that we're teaching them. Because we, we don't have case managers on staff, and we don't have translators on staff. Well, food service provides, as I said in the intro, one of the most applicable professional platforms mm -hmm. for disenfranchised people or, or anyone, really, because food touches all of our lives multiple times mm -hmm. a day. How did you come up with the idea? What was your background to, to see the need that this was a really important point of entry for many people or could once you started a nonprofit? Sure. Well, it happened very organically. <laughs> um, in 2008, when the organization was founded by our founder, Tara Russell, um, you know, of course, 2008 was the Great Recession. Yes. And in the Treasure Valley, where Boise is located, new Americans or refugees were significantly impacted. The unemployment rate for refugees specifically went from 5% to 50% by the end of 2008. And so the initial idea was, simply, how do we take folks that are new to our community who want to work, how do we help them get jobs? So they were looking at things like arts and crafts and agriculture and many different areas in which to um, work with the skill sets that the, the refugees already had. So mm -hmm. it was very kind of focused on the refugee community, but not so focused in terms of what the outcomes were. We did um, at one point get three acres of land donated to us for a farm 
But here in Boise, we have four distinct uh, seasons, and so agriculture doesn't offer year-round sustainable employment, but it did really move us in that direction of food. And so the natural progression then was to um, start cooking with the food that we were growing on the farm, and that evolved into a culinary program, which then evolved into this broader like food service skills category. So in 2013, like I mentioned, when we built our commercial kitchen, that was really when we started to move away from the agricultural piece and really get focused on this food service industry skill set because, like most communities, um, the service industry is growing. People are using food more and more as a way to connect socially or as a way to provide entertainment. And so those, those jobs are actually more and more readily available and harder for our employment partners to fill with people that actually have a skill set and a strength coming in. And so we realized that that was going to be a great opportunity for us from the employment perspective. So that's sort of how we came to really focusing on the food service industry. Fascinating that it actually didn't start with the idea of um, food, but with the right. idea or the need to help in this case, refugees, mm -hmm. which yes. un and, the and unemployment numbers. Yeah. kitchen, it allowed us to expand um, the population that we were able to serve. And so we're still at about 60 to 65 percent new Americans that we're, that we're serving, but we've been able to bring in these other aspects of, of our community that still have great need and be able to incorporate them as well, which has been really, really, really cool, really fun, and really expansive for the experience that our trainees have. Food service training, changing lives for common good. And that is Tracy Hitchcock, the CEO of Create Common Good out of Boise, Idaho. In this hour of an organic conversation, I'm Helga Helberg. Tracy, stay with us. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Adderley, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and our topic in this hour is food service training, changing lives for common good. I'm speaking with Tracy Hitchcock, the CEO of Create Common Good. That's createcommongood.org out of Boise, Idaho. It's a nonprofit focused on food service training to allow people who have barriers for employment to get into society and the job market more easily and well-equipped. Tracy, before the break, you were 
talking about different ethnicities and that this came out of really the refugee problem where from few percent to 50 percent the unemployment rate jumped and there was a need to provide some kind of job skill or, or reintegration program and it was food because food is so applicable with different ethnicities that you've been working with, how do you get fed back? Are those people offering new perspectives to your programs? Do you learn every day as you're working with people from all around the world, even conflict areas, bringing their food Absolutely. knowledge and food history yes. to Boise, we, to your we, nonprofit? Yes, we always say that we learn more from our trainees than they learn from us, <laughs> actually. Like I mentioned earlier, it's typically more than one barrier that someone is coming to us with. So, yes, they're a refugee with, with a, a language barrier, which could be kind of the primary focus, but so many people that come to us are coming from the Congo, from Syria, from Iraq, areas of great disruption and um, Tra terrible, trauma. terrible situations that people have experienced. Yes. So there's often post-traumatic stress disorder that comes right along with that and folks that just need a little extra care so that they're not only learning to succeed, but they're also learning how to fail and still be successful. And so, yes, <laughs> we learn every day from uh, the experiences that all of the human beings that are coming to us share with us, whether it's you know someone who's coming to us from across the globe or someone who's coming to us from across town. Um, who's experienced um, domestic violence. You know, we are, we are constantly learning how to make sure that we are respecting um, the individuals that come through, respecting their individual experiences, and, and helping them grow into learning that they are in a safe place, um, whether it's here at Create Common Good or here in the Boise community, um, that they are safe, that they are valued, that they can take care of themselves and their families going forward. So yes, we are absolutely learning every day and, and, and you know, in sort of those human soul heart aspects, but also some of their great recipes, <laughs> you know, so we absolutely have enjoyed learning a lot about Ethiopian food and food that's traditional in the Congo and food that's traditional in Iraq. And on graduation day, we do, a, we do a lovely ceremony where we invite employment partners and board members and folks from the community and the family members of the trainees to come in and celebrate with us. And then the trainees that day get to create a recipe from their home, whether it's, you know, a home in Tennessee or a home in Congo. They get to create a, re a recipe to share with us that is meaningful to them. And um, we, you know, it's, it's just food is a connector. I think you've mentioned that. It's such a connector of all human beings. And so being able to share something from your childhood or from your home country is, is just a beautiful way to, to share about who you are and where you've come from. And it's an essential piece. Uh, to what we do here. How do you bring that into the programs? Do you pray before you, you prepare meals or you eat? Or how is this actively held? And is it difficult to, to provide that safety? It's really, it sounds like healing and peace work that you do from somebody uh, out of, from Africa. Uh, is that different to, to somebody from you know the town uh, next right. to Boise? How do you manage that? Yeah, so... We just try to make it evident in everything that we do, everything that we say, every conversation that we have, 
but each individual experience is absolutely respected and that we offer that to the trainees and we expect that from them as well. We don't specifically set aside a prayer time because that also doesn't work for everyone. Yes. So we encourage folks to do what feels good to them in terms of how they want to engage with you know mealtime and those types of things. So we absolutely have folks that are creating, or I, I should say observing their own traditions and then creating space to acknowledge and respect the different traditions of everyone who's around the table. And for instance, like the month of Ramadan, it's interesting. Uh, this time we had three or four trainees that were observing Ramadan. And so they would be in the, the kitchen all day preparing these beautiful meals. And then they would typically choose to either sit outside at the picnic table or sit out in the hallway so they didn't have to be tempted by, you know, eating the food. But, yes. you know, obviously we tried to create a space for them to be able to honor that tradition, um, that religion, and make it okay. You know, we're just really all about the, the core values that create common good are engagement, empowerment, and gratitude. And we talk about that all the time as a staff, but we also talk about that with our trainees. And that means that everybody gets to come into Create Common Good and, and make the best of their experience while honoring their own traditions and their own beliefs. Well, it sounds like you, you're living, working proof that a peaceful world is possible among any <laughs> yeah. culture if we intentionally hold that space and come together around food. That's that exactly your, right. That That's your experience? exactly right. For your graduates, where do you see them go after? You've been doing this for years now. Um, they, mm -hmm. There's a good history of placement. Where do people end up, and what's the feedback loop that you're getting? Once they, they leave Create Common Good, are they gone, or do you kind of keep an intentional community for graduates that passed your test at the end four years ago or even longer? Well, first and foremost, you know, we, we really try to pay attention to the individual. And so when we're looking for employment, we are really paying attention to where that person will thrive. So, for instance, if someone's got a language barrier and doesn't do well in stressful environments, it's not going to work out very well for them to be in a bustling, high-volume um, restaurant in downtown. Uh -huh we're going to look for opportunities for them maybe in an assisted living home um, where they're still absolutely using their skills in food service, but it's a slower pace. It's a, it's a gentler environment. However, you know, we've got some folks that are, are coming to us and they actually, you know, have overcome their addictions and they're in a place where they're ready to take on some more of that quick-paced environment. So we're looking at places like, you know, Whole Foods Deli, or other local grocery store delis or, um, you know, Chick-fil-A here locally as a more kind of nat national franchise um, has been a great employment partner for us. So um, we're really looking to put people in environments where they're going to thrive. And we, you know, our single greatest measure, especially when it comes to grant writing, <laughs> is our job placement rate. And so we are heavily invested in, in making sure that our graduates, once they leave the program, they've got their resume and their portfolio and their serve safe certification in hand, that they're going to the right place where they're going to be treated well and respected and be able to be ultimately successful, however they define that. Uh, we do keep a loop going in terms of staying connected as much as possible with our graduates and also staying connected with our employment partners 
we check in at um, two weeks, at a month, at three months, and at six months. And I got to tell you, a lot of folks tend to fall off the radar after that three-month check. Um, phone numbers change, they move, they, you know, even if it's within town, they go to a different address and, you know, things change. But we do have those folks that have absolutely stayed in touch. We get trainees, or excuse me, graduates from our program coming back almost every week to check in and show us their new car or talk about the success that they've had. And so we have absolutely stayed in touch with a number of folks that love to come back and share their stories with us. Um, And in fact, we just did a, a feature piece for one of the local news channels, and we had four of our graduates from the Congo come back in and interview. And they all work out um, at the airport for Delaware North and have just (laughs) really prospered and grown and, you know, even into home ownership and marriage and starting families and all of those things. So we, we absolutely do our best to stay in a place of connection because we do, you know, encourage them to think of us as an extension of their family. We're speaking with Tracy Hitchcock, the CEO of Create Common Good, who's joining us today from Boise, Idaho, in this hour of an organic conversation. That's createcommongood.org. Our focus is food service training as food touches so many areas of our lives personally and professionally changing lives for common good. Create Common Good is a nonprofit focused on providing food service skills as defined by Tracy in this interview, to remove barriers of employment for people who are disenfranchised. Tracy, do you have a couple of concrete stories that were the most touching when you look at your years as a CEO of this organization where you really feel that's why you get up out of bed? What (laughs) what, what are the most moving moments that you had working with so many different ethnicities and people from all sorts Um, of life? So many. Um, And I should clarify, I was actually a volunteer on the Strategic Advisory Board for about three and a half years and then transitioned over to becoming the CEO just a little under a year ago. So although I've only been in my official capacity with the organization for around a year, I have been involved for about the last four or four and a half years. And I can tell you that... Yeah, and I tend to get, you know, immediately emotional when I start talking about these things, but we have seen such incredible <laughs> stories of success and and really these people discovering for themselves or rediscovering for themselves their own self-worth and their own potential. And that's part of the empowerment that we're really invested in. We're not doing for, we're doing with, and we're helping these wonderful people who have been through so much rediscover that they are worth investing in themselves and they are worth going forward. You know, one of my favorite stories that has just occurred in the last nine months is a woman named Sherry who came to us through uh, the Department of Corrections system and she's grown up in Boise. She um, managed to survive through bouts of homelessness with her family as she was growing up, but she did find herself getting in with a group of folks and becoming really dependent on alcoholism. And she has come through our program. She graduated our program, and then two months after that, I believe it was, she graduated from drug court, um, and she's now been three years sober. She also (laughs) 
has seven kids. Four of them are at home. She's a single mom. And she came through our training so beautifully. She has shared her story so openly with community members that are engaging with us. And in fact, uh, we had a need on our production team, and she now is an employee of Create Common Good. And we are just so thrilled to um, see her success and be able to work with her every day. It's, it's less usual for folks to transition into becoming Create Common Good employees, but that is a, a huge success story. And another one that I would share briefly with you is uh, a woman named Dalal who came to our program um, from Iraq. She came through our program about three years ago. She came over to this country with her daughters and her husband. They had lost a son to the violence in Iraq uh, because of their religious beliefs, and they escaped that violence and came here to Boise. She came to our program. She had been in banking in Iraq. She came to our program. She was challenged with language barriers, but also, you know, all of the trauma that they had been through to while living in their home country, but also to get to the United States and then to Boise. And she completed our program. She uh, ended up working part-time for us on the production crew and part-time for a local restaurant called Boise Fry Company. And while she was doing that, she got her U.S. citizenship. So this spring, she celebrated two years of being a U.S. citizen, and her three daughters are now going to Boise State University here and are in college, you know, so it's, it's just, um, it's just really amazing to uh, see that kind of success, not only for Dalal as the individual, but for her family and for her children and, and breaking that cycle of violence and poverty or living close to the poverty line and being able to create something beautiful for her family. It sounds like your work is needed in every city in the United States. We all are facing similar, if not totally identical, challenges of you know, reintegration and reincarceration, unfortunately. It seems like even though you have you know, 18 students in total in your two current programs every three months rotating through, but the impact you're having is by far greater um, on the community and on the families of, of your participants. Do you have plans to roll out branches in other cities? Yes. We talk a lot about Boise and beyond, and we have talked also about 2016 being a year where we're really strengthening our foundation. So in January, we actually expanded our training program from four weeks to eight weeks because as we were following up with employers and as we were following up with our graduates, we realized that we weren't giving them as strong of a foundation as they needed to have to ultimately mm -hmm. be successful long-term. Sure. So we doubled the length of our program. We are really working to get additional customers for our production side. So like we talked about, we can increase the revenue that can then feed back into the program. And our, our hope is, well, not our hope, our plan, our strategy, is to um, expand our program enough so that we are able to go beyond serving 100 individual year, individuals a year to getting up to that 200, 250 mark, expanding our production area, creating a separate kitchen that is dedicated to training and classroom space, and being able to really grow it and grow it and grow it so that we then have 
a replicatable model that can go into other communities across the country where these services are needed. And so it really would be sort of a training model that we could take into other communities where, you know, we wouldn't necessarily have to have the brick and mortar that we have here in Boise where we've got this, you know, production kitchen, et cetera, but we could take our program into other communities where there are maybe other nonprofits or other organizations that have existing commercial kitchens and space where we can go in and teach them about this model that we have that that is proven to be successful. And then we've also dreamt about um, taking our production into other areas of the country as well so that we can also serve the communities in that way and reach broader partners, take it bigger. You know, maybe it's providing fresh, healthy food for Starbucks in that region or in that state. So we're, we're starting to dream bigger about how we can grow both sides of our social enterprise nonprofit and then teach others across the country how to do the same thing and have those same beautiful outcomes that we're enjoying here today. So we're really looking at probably, you know, later 2017, 2018 to really start going beyond Boise. And when you when you look at um, the, you know, we talk about barriers of employment, when you look at barriers for your organization, what's the, is it funding or is it the status of being an official refugee program and people come here to this country? What's, what's the most missing piece? Funding, <laughs> you know, which is um, probably the same for every uh, nonprofit organization that you talk to. It really is funding. We rely Obviously, right now, with only 10 to 15 percent of our budget being covered by our revenue that we're generating, we are really dependent upon organizations, foundations sure. that can help us. And so we're, we're very focused on grant writing. We're also really focused on reaching out to um, community partners here that believe in, in what we're doing. And, you know, we are able to demonstrate that we're growing the business side as well, so it's 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 that story of success of our trainees but you know we're we're teaching them self-sufficiency and we're trying to model self-sufficiency as well sure and um so growing you know our our reach with um, community partners but also growing our reach with production partners that we can grow both parts of the pie around funding Um, and that's really going to allow us to expand in the current building that we're in really allow us to strengthen the foundation of this model and then be able to replicate it and take it elsewhere. So if a company listens to this and has some prep food, food service needs, they can contact you if somebody's interested in participating in the program itself. They can go online and find an application or if somebody wants to uh, support you financially, all that is on createcommongood.org. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. And there's so much information on, on that, our website that will really help direct, you know, whether, yeah, whether you want to volunteer with us and engage with us that way, whether you want to give and engage in a financial way, or um, if you want to come and join our program and benefit that way, or if you want to engage with us um, so that we can help solve you know, an issue that a restaurateur or any other company might be having where we can meet their um, needs from a product perspective. Great. Again, createcommongood.org. And that is Tracy Hitchcock, the 
newly but um, long involved now CEO of Create Common Good out of Boise, Idaho. Excellent work, Tracy. Good luck with your plans and your growth, and we'll have you back soon. Thank you so much, Helga. I really appreciate the opportunity to tell the story of Create Common Good and all that we're doing here in Boise. Yes, it's our honor. Thank you, Tracy. Take care. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's, and again, a conversation today focused on food service training as food touches so many areas of our lives, being trained in any aspect of food from nutrition to food preparation to chefing to catering provides a foundation that the person will take with them for the rest of their lives. And that training is provided in this case by Create Common Good, Boise, Idaho, createcommongood.org. Tracy Hitchcock, their CEO. Wonderful work. And we're staying with the topic of food. We're staying with the topic of produce, healthy fruits and vegetables, all organic, of course. Here's the update from the world of fruits and vegetables directly from the produce dock of the San Francisco produce market. Here is what's in season. And with us now, as always, is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrick. Earl, do we have you on the line? Yes, Helga. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I saw some leaves falling this morning and I, I you know once every year I get like one day one moment where I realize wow the light has changed and we're now you know slowly but surely facing fall yeah how is that on the dock for you well you know I, I wanted to share my experience too I <laughs> I had one a week or so ago where I was out at night and I actually put a, a shirt on over a t-shirt because it's just a little chill in the air and <laughs> And those are those kind of seminal moments you go, yep, another passing. <laughs> yeah. You know, even though it's going to get warm again, <laughs> and we'll have, you know, wonderful Indian summer as we get into September, October, but still is that, yes, and also there's back to school stuff going on and, yep. and all those things. This was it. In, in, in the produce world, lots of stuff continues to happen. You know, figs have been with us a couple weeks now. The apples are just starting to come out of California. Pears are starting to emerge. Uh, what I wanted to focus on today was uh, the citrus, even though the citrus season doesn't really hit till November, December, January. There is a particular activity this time of year which quite often goes unnoticed, mm-hmm. and uh, that is the uh, Valencia crop, which for many people it's understood to be the, the California citrus. Valencias are a real stable piece of fruit for a lot of households. You know, they're, they have seeds, and they can be more difficult to peel. Thus, they're really understood and enjoyed more as a juicing orange, which is how I've I've always enjoyed them. And they're they're very juicy and they're very sweet. And this year, there's an interesting dynamic. We're seeing the highest, uh, some of the highest prices in years. Though at first I thought it was production, production was down, but in fact that is not the case. Production is very stable. The demand is higher. Uh, and that is worldwide because, one, two major growing areas that are outside of California, one, Florida, South America, Brazil, they've had problems. Uh-huh. I think there's a pest issue in Florida, and I'm not sure what the issue is in, in Brazil. So 
that depletion of supply sure. means shifts the demand to, to California. Exactly. So that's what we're seeing. So the prices are quite high. Uh, and so the year is going to end a little sooner. I've, I've known in, in years past, it's been a decade or more now, we've had uh, Valencia's go the entire year long. Well, it, it'll trickle on into September, October, but um, it, it's, it's pretty much drawing to an end now. Hmm. The prices will continue to go up. So our next really great piece of citrus is going to be that wonderful Satsuma uh, at the end of October, beginning of November. So what can um, people do now when prices are high and, and, and demand continues to be strong, even though supply is not down, but supply is affected by international affairs and, and, and trade issues uh, yeah. or, or production overseas? What can, what can people seeing that higher price in the sh on the shelf right now, what, what can they do? For me, um, I'm making smoothies with different things. Part of that supply side being stable, demand being higher also is there are more people juicing than ever before. Oh, for sure. So there's a real positive thing there about behaviors being being altered a little bit. So really what there is to do, well, one good thing is Valencia's keep incredibly well. So if you really are a rock-solid uh, juicer, you can buy ahead, keep them in the refrigerator. They stay. It's incredible. I've had... I've, I actually kept a box of Valencia's this summer out of my front porch for uh, over a month. Now, definitely, there was some decay, and I lost some product, some pieces of fruit. But still, it's amazing. They're they're hardy little devils. So, what what does it translate to in the uh, on the price for one piece of fruit? You are dealing mm -hmm. with boxes and and shiploads yeah, full. Yeah, I'm saying you you can pay it up to a dollar for uh, Valencia, which is which is crazy. You know, generally you could buy like three pieces of fruit for a, a dollar, but here it could be up to a dollar. Though on a, it's it's going to translate into a store as maybe three ninety nine a pound or two ninety nine a pound. Again, this is organic, and that price is high, and it is about that age old economic uh, equation of supply uh, and demand. And you're getting here, a local, a domestic product, right? Depending on where you are in the U.S., but you absolutely. You are getting uh, all California product. We won't see Mexican uh, product come on till later in the fall. But yeah, right now it's all California. Like I said, uh, depletion in other areas. So that's part of it. California fruits being shipped all over the place. Um, we're in between seasons on lemons, kind of jump a little bit there. So those prices are the highest we've seen in four or five years. We're just a little in between the different regions. Generally, there's three districts that produce lemons, and we're just, they're kind of known as the coastal, the desert, and what would be known as the interior, which is uh, the southern San Joaquin Valley. So we're in between there. Again, you're going to pay good 3 to $4 a pound on lemons, uh, and that's why I think a great investment is a, is a, is a, uh, a lemon tree. Uh, you can, they say, again, also they stay on the tree forever, Uh, they mature well. You don't have to pick them, and you, you go out and pick them when you want to. So that is real, and they're beautiful. Yeah, and uh, with beautiful. with oranges, knowing that the quality is really high, and you're supporting, you know, domestic agriculture, if not local, if you are in California, maybe this is the time to find alternative outlets. If you really go through, you know, several pounds of Valencia oranges because you love the flavor and you love the taste. 
you can find a local distributor like you are. You don't have to be a grocery store to shop at Earl's Organic. Anyone can actually walk in in the morning and get basically, what, 30 40% half off of what you yeah. would find in, in prices in the store? Yeah, sometimes it could be as high as half, but generally 30 40 for sure. And all it requires uh, shopping at a wholesaler is that you're buying the entire case. And honestly, if you're an avid juicer, that's oh, probably yeah, no problem. Probably consuming that within a week, and certainly the product will hold for a week, especially if it's uh, in a in a mild area, even if it's uh, on a porch or in a part of the house where it's very mild. And then also maybe what you do, you open up the box and you have a top and a bottom, and you put uh, equal parts in in the top and the bottom, and then they the pressure of the uh -huh. weight on top of it won't bruise it. Uh, and again, what they look like is very little importance. It has nothing to do with the flavor. Matter of fact, some some of the best Valencia I've ever eaten have been what we used to call ugly fruit, and it would just have sugar off the hook. And it continues to sweeten because it, as it ages, it dehydrates. Oh yeah. And the sugars concentrate. So even though you're going to get, you're going to use a couple more pieces of fruit to get yourself a, a eight ounces of juice. It will be sweet as sugar, and honestly, you asked about what you can do. You can even dilute that a bit with some water, and you will still be very, very happy. Nice. So what's maybe prohibitive for a whole box of lettuce for somebody to, to work through, to eat through within just two, three, four days before it decays with oranges, since they do last, or citrus, since they do last much longer, a week or two, and, and, and maybe under perfect storage conditions, even a little longer. Um, you can split a box with others, but even yourself, if you are an orange or citrus lover, find yeah. a local wholesaler uh, just like Earl's Organic and, uh, yeah, get a 30 or 40% price discount to the price in the grocery store and get yes. excellent domestic we product have, right now. Yes, we have many people that do that. And here, in, in a part of the interesting thing, I know for where wholesaler too is you can shop in the middle of the night uh, i don't know if that's very appealing to everybody we have a number of people that walk um, in at 10 at night right 10 o'clock midnight they're returning from somewhere i've actually had uh <laughs> groups of people that get together and part of what they like to do is come down to the market it's it's a pretty riotous affair and it's uh, a very unusual experience to understand that while everybody while the city is sleeping you have this whole infrastructure that supports everybody that's, you know, cooking and, and taking care of business. Yeah, and I, I would think that the image of, you know, 20 years ago, go, don't go down to the meat market or the, the produce market or the flower market. It seems like, you know, you have a chance of survival. Not so anymore. <laughs> it's a fun, safe place. You can, you yeah. know, grab a coffee, talk some yeah. produce, get the best tips there. And it, absolutely, it's a, it's a fun experience, actually, to do that. So yeah. highly encouraged. Human beings continue to evolve, and so do the produce market. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And thank you for your work doing that, actually, helping with that. Thank you, you so much, Earl. And we'll have you back next week with, you said, pears? Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about pears. The, the Coming in already. Oh, fall yeah, is here. Sure they are. <laughs> and, and one of my favorites is the California Barlet. We'll touch base on that next week. Great. Sounds good. Citrus is where it's at this week. Thank you so much for that update, Earl. We'll have you back yes, soon. Yes, sir. Take care. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye.
And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at anorganicconversation and our Twitter handle is talkorganic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here. Same place, same time next week. See you then.